And I want uh, you to turn to Luke chapter 21. We're continuing our studies uh, in the gospel uh, of Luke, Luke chapter 1. We're looking at the first four verses, but I want to read from verse 46 of chapter 20 just to see those verses in their context. So Luke chapter 20 and verse 46. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small coins, and he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live in, to live on. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Amen. And we know God will bless the reading of his word. Money talks. That's a cliche that's meant to convey the idea that those who have money and use that money generally exercise greater influence than those who don't have money and don't use that money. Now, of course, that's true in the secular world. Money does talk, and uh, it's true that those who tend to have money talk more than everybody else. But that shouldn't be true in the spiritual fear. It shouldn't matter when it comes to the church. But in another way, money does talk when it comes to spiritual things. Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 21, "'For where your treasure is, there your heart is also.'" Money and our attitude to money reveals a lot about our attitude to and our relationship with God. And that's what makes this little snippet at the beginning of Luke chapter 21 so interesting because Jesus teaches us a lot about the rich and the poor and the unhealthy and on spiritual attitudes towards money that often uh, is manifested in religious circles. This is the last week of our Lord's life. On the Monday, he entered the city. On the Tuesday, he cleansed the temple. Uh, On the Wednesday, he has been teaching. This day, he has been teaching uh, in the temple area and confronting the false teachers, uh, the religious teachers of Judaism. Wave after wave uh, come to him uh, and endeavor to trap him with his words so that they will have some reason to hand him over to the Romans for them to execute him. One by one, they come. And when we put the Gospels together, we know the Pharisees came, the Herodians came, the Sadducees came, the scribes came, the priests came, and even the chief priests um, come. But he silences them one by one by his superior wisdom and his insightful logic. So now he has left them with no alternative but to fabricate Um, a reason to execute him as they hand him over uh, on the Friday to the Romans. So, at the end of this intensive day of teaching, challenging and rebuking, Jesus, probably exhausted from all that activity, sits down. Notice verse 1, Jesus looked up. 
In other words, his head must have been hanging down. Was it hanging down with exhaustion? Was it uh, hanging down with grief? Probably a mixture of those two things, because Jesus not only had a heavy and demanding day, but a heartbreaking day as he engaged with those religious leaders and challenged them. They not only um, uh, um, were, were challenged by him, but they also rejected him. Indeed, Matthew, at the end of, uh, in his gospel, at the end of this, these encounters, uh, puts these words uh, into Jesus' mouth, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, stone those who send to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And you can almost hear the grief, the agony, the pathos of those words. So he hangs his head, maybe in exhaustion, maybe with grief, likelihood, a mixture of those two things. And then he lifts his head up. And as he looks up, he sees a number of different rich people putting their gifts into the receptacles provided, and then this poor widow doing the same. Now, from this incident, I want you to notice three things. What Jesus saw, what Jesus said, and how Jesus felt. So, first of all, this morning, what Jesus saw. Look at verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. Jesus, at this moment, was in the court of the woman at the temple. This area was a large open space which, uh, in which Jesus had been teaching, which Jews, both male and female, could enter, and that's why it was known as the court of the woman. Jesus had been doing his teaching, uh, engaging with these religious leaders in chapter 20, and when he had finished, he sat down offer, uh, opposite the offering box, literally the temple treasury, which was located in the woman's court. This treasury had um, 13 large trumpet-like uh, brass receptacles uh, that were used for the offerings, and underneath each one uh, there was a notice indicating what the offering was to be used for. One was for the poor, one was for sacrifices, one was for temple upkeep. And as Jesus watched, he could see people putting their offerings into these boxes. And since it was Passover, and people from all over the known world had conveyed, Jews from all over the known world had converged on Jerusalem, this was a busy spot, and the money was flowing. Jesus observed the rich putting in their money. Mark says many rich people threw in large amounts. Now, remember in these days there was no such thing as paper money. So, there was no such thing as Ian Paisley referred to as a silent offering. And you could just imagine these rich people coming in with their money that they had saved up perhaps over the year for the annual Passover feast, and they, they open their little money bags, and they pour in uh, the money from a great height, and it rattles down the brass uh, throat of the trumpets, making as much, much noise as uh, is possible. That's what Jesus meant when He said in the Sermon on the Mount, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. The trumpets and the rattle of the coins in the throat of those trumpets drew attention to the offering that had been made. 
Then as our Lord is looking, he sees a poor widow throwing in two small copper coins. Now, notice this woman was not simply a widow, according to verse 2. She was a poor widow. As we noticed last week in the ancient world, widows were very vulnerable. In days when there was no social security net, uh, widows were um, uh, dependent upon the extended family, and if there was no extended family, they were often driven into prostitution or driven to sell themselves into slavery. So, this woman was a poor widow. In other words, she was absolutely destitute. In fact, in verse 4, we're told that she put in all that she had to live on. She had nothing less these two coins that she threw in stood between her and starvation. And as Jesus watches this woman, he sees her throw in these two mites, as the authorized version says, literally two lepta, which is the plural of lepi, which is this, was the smallest Jewish coin. It was called a lepi because lepi meant healing. And it was so wafer thin, it resembled just a, a, a peeling of, a, a, of an apple or some other fruit. And I don't suppose it made much of a noise when it was thrown into these brass receptacles. Tulepta was the minimum offering allowed at the temple. The value was minimal. Um, so, there were 16 uh, lepta in a denarius. A denarius was the wage for a laborer for the day. So, if we transfer that into day's money uh, and we take the minimum wage at £8.72, uh, multiply that up for a, a, a 10-hour day, which was the length of time they worked in that particular day, um, and then divided it by 16, uh, she threw in equivalent to five pounds. And I would assume that the buying power of Tulepta uh, then was probably much the same as the buying power of five pounds is today, uh, enough for a loaf of bread, tin of beans, and a, a cup of tea. This poor widow threw in her last five pounds, what Jesus saw. The second thing I want you to notice is what Jesus said. Look at verses 3 and 4. Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. This woman, says Jesus, put in more than anyone else. I would imagine the disciples were shocked and startled, uh, perhaps puzzled at the words of Jesus. How could this possibly be? Surely a thousand denaria is worth more than, uh, um, well, two-sixteenths, one-eighth of a denarius. Surely a thousand pounds is worth more than five pounds. Can God not do more with a large gift than a small gift? And the answer is not necessarily. But Jesus goes on to point out that in God's economy, the monetary value of the gift is not everything. He says all these people give their gifts out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty. As William Henriksen, the commentator, says, in his estimation, these two copper coins were two sparkling diamonds. Divine accounting works on different principles than human accounting. For when it comes to our giving to God, 
He looks not only on the portion, but he looks on the proportion. In fact, he says in verse 3, not this poor widow has put in more than all of these, but literally, this poor woman has put in more than all of these together. That if you group together all of the offerings that day, this woman had given more than that total amount. By human standards, this woman's giving was paltry. But by divine um, standards, it was priceless. She gave out of her poverty, but they gave out of their abundance. What is Jesus actually saying? Well, he's actually saying it's not the size of the gift that matters, but it is the sacrifice behind the gift that matters. The issue is not how much did I give, but how much did it cost me? It's that element of sacrifice that, is, that, that, that counts. It's the cost of the, the gift to the individual that gives. Do you remember David in 2 Samuel 24 when he was offered a piece um, of land, a site for sacrifice, which incidentally would ultimately become the site for the temple, Jesus refused to accept that gift. He insisted on paying for it, and he said, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. It's giving that cost that is pleasing to God. C.S. Lewis helpfully writes, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is that we should give more than we can spare. Well, I don't think Jesus is teaching that like this woman, we should give everything. I, I think this woman was mistaken on that, as we shall see in a moment. Jesus is not saying it's a sin to be rich, it's a sin to have money, and that you should give all that you have. But he is teaching that when it comes to giving, it's the principle of sacrifice that matters. Does it mean that you need to deny yourself some luxury, some hobby, some interest, so that the work of God might go forward? Well, we know that Scripture teaches that Christians should give proportionately. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2, on the first day of the week, each of you should, come, should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, laying it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. So you set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. That's a good, sound, biblical principle, that a proportion of your income is set aside for God. In the Old Testament, it was a tithe, and in the New Testament, that sense of proportionality continues. So that it is a New Testament principle, our giving should be proportional. But Jesus is teaching something else here. Our giving should not only be proportional, it should be sacrificial. That it's not the size of the amount that we give that matters, but what it costs us to give that counts. They gave out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty. Do you give in that way? Going without certain things, denying yourself certain pleasures, delaying making certain purchases so that the work of God may go forward. What Jesus said, verse 3, truly I tell you, this poor woman has put in 
more than all of them, for they all uh, contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. What Jesus saw, what Jesus said, and the last thing I want you to notice is what Jesus felt. Now, what I'm about to say well, as Mason would say, blow your socks off. Uh, it, it's going to shock you because I'm going to turn the traditional understanding of these verses on their head. I want you to notice that from these four verses, Jesus, what Jesus does not say, he doesn't commend the woman in any way. He doesn't say the rich gave too little and she gave what was right. He didn't say that she given the right attitude and they given the wrong attitude. He doesn't set her up as a model to follow, as an example to copy. He doesn't say to the disciples, go and do thy likewise. I want you to open your money bags and put in all that you have. He doesn't say any of that. All he states is the fact that she had given more than all of them together because she had given out of her poverty. If a principle is to be drawn, that is the principle that needs to be drawn. Drawn that, that giving is not to be measured in terms of the monetary value, but in terms of the sacrifice that lies behind it. In fact, nothing is said about this woman's attitude. She could have been acting out of love, she could have been acting out of guilt. She could have been even acting out of fear. We're not told we don't know. Jesus doesn't say anything about that at all. In fact, if you're going to set this woman up as an example to follow, you would have to say that you need to sell all that you have and give it to the, the, the poor or give it to the Lord. You should renounce wealth and take a vow of poverty because she gave all that she had. And that's how some monastic orders, of course, in, interpret these verses, that you should sell all you have, give it away, and live like a pauper. Just give it all to the work of the Lord. And if you want to follow this woman's example, tomorrow you need to go and put your house in the market. You need to sell it. You need to sell your car, put it on auto trader. You need to um, um, empty your bank account and give it all to the work of the Lord. After all, she gave all that she had. The authorized version says she cast in all the living that she had. Now, is that what Jesus is teaching? The assumption is made that Jesus was pleased with this, what this woman did. I want to suggest to you that he wasn't pleased. But in fact, he was angry and sad what Jesus felt. Angry not so much with her, but angry with the system that made her feel that she had to give all that she had. Now, why do I say that? Well, in the past, I've told you that you must, when it comes to Bible interpretation, be a slave to context, to the context in which the verses appear that a text without a context is a pretext. You remember that rule of selling your house or buying property, probably more buying property, that those threefold um, uh, rules, location, location, location. That is one of the basic rules of biblical exposition, that you must look at the context in which these verses appear. Now, what is the context? 
Well, in chapter 20, Jesus has been confronting and condemning the religious establishment of his day. When you put the gospel records together, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the priests, the, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, or, or the scribes. Now, you will remember last week that we finished our study by looking at Jesus' condemnation of the scribes. Just go back to chapter 20 and verse 46. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Do you see that? They devour widows' houses. One of the marks of the false religion that Jesus condemned was that they exploited the vulnerable in society, the widows. In the very next verse, Jesus sees a widow throwing in all that she had. Now, most commentators see no connection between those two things. The mark of hypocritical false religion is the exploitation of widows and then we have a widow uh, throwing in her very last um, uh, money, bit of money, into a false religious system. Now, is there no connection between those two things? Notice also in chapter 21 and verse 5, Jesus predicts and pronounces judgment on that same false religious system. As the disciples are remarking on the, the appearance of the temple, its wonderful construction, Jesus says in verse 6, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. It's all coming down, Jesus says. It's going to be trampled and toppled. And the religious system that had built up around the temple, it's all coming down too. And that's actually what happened in A.D. 70. Titus Justus and his soldiers completely ransacked Jerusalem and toppled the temple to the ground, a temple that has never been rebuilt. So what is the context? Well, the context is this. Like two great bookends, uh, you have, with the widow's offering in between, but two great bookends, you have Jesus condemning false traditional Judaism. And then the other, you have Jesus announcing judgment on that religion. Is Luke sort of writing and compiling this gospel and say, oh, we need a bit of relief here. Let's put in a, a little happy story about a widow making a great sacrifice. You cannot tell me that these verses are irrelevant to the giving uh, of the account of the widow. Jesus, on the one hand, condemns false religion that exploits widows, and Jesus, secondly, announces judgment on that false religion that takes advantage of widows. And in between, you have the account of the widow throwing in her coins. You can't tell me that those things aren't related. You can't rip this story out of its context and call it, as one commentator does, a happy interlude. You cannot violate the text of Scripture in that way. We must see the story in its context. So what I'm suggesting to you is that Jesus was not pleased with this offering. 
but he was actually angry. Angry not so much with the woman, but angry with the religious system that made this poor widow feel that she had to give all that she had in order to secure her place in heaven after she died, because if this was her last meal, that's certainly what was going to happen to her. How would you feel if you saw a destitute widow giving her last five pounds into some religious system? You would say that there was something wrong with that system that takes the last bite out of a person's mouth and leaves her nothing to live on. And you would be right. To give your last penny to a religious system and then let that person go home and die. Any religion that is built on the back of the poor and exploits the vulnerable of society is wrong. This is a tragic picture that is being painted. You see, the rabbis taught that it is with alms that you purchase your place in heaven. And they taught that two lepta was the minimum acceptable offering at the temple. And so she throws in her last two coins in order to purchase her place in heaven. God doesn't demand of a destitute widow her last five pound. You can't find that anywhere in the Bible. That's the last thing God would demand. But here she is, manipulated by a religious system that had convinced her that her giving was essential for her salvation. God's law was never given to impoverish God's people, but to help God's people. And so Jesus condemns a religious system, announces judgment on that religious system that is so corrupt that this poor widow felt obligated to give her last five pounds to secure her future destiny when she died. Jesus isn't commending her. She is a victim of a religious system that had no place for grace. Jesus doesn't want you to give up all that you have and go home and die. He wants you to understand that salvation cannot be bought, that salvation cannot be earned, that salvation cannot be secured by sacrifice. It's all of the grace of God. And grace, as you know, is the unmerited favor of God. Grace is what, getting what you don't deserve. Ephesians Two, by grace are you saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, not by works. It's a gift, not by works, so that no one can boast. Salvation, as B.B. Warfield says, is a pure gratuity from God. Jesus condemns and pronounces judgment on a religious system that had lost its understanding of grace, of the true meaning of grace. A religious system that had brainwashed this vulnerable widow into thinking that she had to give her last five pounds, give up her last meal to secure her place in heaven. And no wonder Jesus condemns her, condemns that system. You would want to shut down any religious system, any church that convinced poor and vulnerable people that they would be better to give their last meal 
into the church or the money that would purchase that last meal into the church than um, go out and buy food to live on. It's interesting to me that the great doctrine of the grace of God and the great doctrine rediscovered at the Reformation, which was justification by faith, came about through this particular issue. The church was exploiting the poor by selling indulgences in order that your relative could uh, escape from purgatory and uh, secure a place in heaven. And they were doing that in order that they could build um, St. Peter's uh, in, in Rome, uh, the Vatican. And Tretzel was running around Germany, and his mantra was, the moment a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And lots of vulnerable people were being guilted into giving money in the order, in order that they might secure the place in heaven of a loved one that had previously died. And when Luther nailed his 95 thesis um, to the castle door in Wittenberg, it was that practice that he, he condemned. It wasn't primarily about justification by faith. It was about that uh, abuse, and that abuse led them to an understanding of how a person is made right with God, that we're saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone. Beware of a religious system that exploits the poor and guilts the poor into giving in order to forward their own work. Beware of those who talk much of money and little of grace. We are saved, made right with God, not by how much we give to God or how much we sacrifice for God, but by the free grace of God. What Jesus felt. I would suggest to you that when he looked up and saw this woman throwing in her last coins in the hope of securing salvation, he was angry. Angry at a system that made this woman think that's what God required of her. By grace are you saved through faith that salvation is a gratuity from God. It's God giving us something that we don't deserve, something that we can't earn, something that we can't work for, that no sacrifice can uh, merit, and, and simply by trusting and believing in Jesus. That's how we secure our place in heaven. What Jesus saw, what Jesus said, and what Jesus felt. Amen.